Hi, and welcome to this month's Dharma Things podcast with me, Ms. DeShannon. And I have another lovely guest who has taken time out to give us their life story, some gems of wisdom. And as always, maybe we'll have a couple of jokes along the way. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm really pleased, actually, to have this guest on. Um, is somebody that was quite an icon <laughs> at the time when I was um, in my late teens, um, when you're in that period of your life where you're really starting to find yourself, discover yourself, break out of that little bubble of high school and college and stuff and become your own person. And you're very much on a steep path into becoming who you're going to become. Um, and this time of life when we were, you know, in the sort of 90s, early to mid 90s, was all about the UK rave scene, hardcore house music, lots of love and friendship. And it was like nothing that anybody had ever experienced before, unless you were really in the 60s. Um, and I'm really happy to welcome Sudi onto the show uh, Sudi Raval, who was behind one of the biggest tracks of the time, Hardcore Uproar. So hi, Sudi. Welcome. Hello. Hi. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that intro. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? I'm really good. Yeah, I'm really good. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And the listeners can't actually see the amazing studio that you're sat in. This is your home <laughs> studio, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. My synth collection. It's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> all these little basically lots of little gadgets behind study all of which look the same but he assures, <laughs> <laughs> he assures me that they actually do very different things <laughs> yeah. yeah they do slightly <laughs> <laughs> and this is your life now isn't it how would you describe what what your job is really um, I, I've always made sounds for a living and uh, for the most of my life I've made sounds for video games, computer games, um, which is just a, a bit of a uh, dream really because um, I like games and I like making sounds so uh, <laughs> Perfect. I, yeah I get to do the two and I like games when I was a kid, um, stumbled into uh, the music industry which was never a um, an ambition, if you like, you know, because a lot of people succeed in the music industry after working hard at gigging and putting, sending demos out. Um, whereas um, me and Jonathan and our band, we kind of accidentally fell into it. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, obviously, we were trying to make music, but didn't expect to be commercially successful. That yeah. wasn't ever part of the plan. So went in a random direction and then got into making games soundtracks and did that uh for 20 25 years actually it was about and then I taught for a couple of years and got back into making um got back into video games again now nice so you became a teacher yeah I did yeah um which again was loads of fun and um uh it was crazy that I was kind of uh, asked to teach about the history of electronic music and teach about DJing and music production so um oh. I was just kind of doing what I, I love so and and the kids as well because I was teaching at the Brit school they're so ridiculously talented and so mature and so bright 
it was great being around them. And, and and it's really nice that a lot of them contact me. I get messages from their parents. I even went, I've been to a couple of gigs in the last few weeks um, from people and met their parents there. The parents message me and they're lovely, lovely people. Yeah, they, they, they're really cool. So, you know, it's great that I'm, I'm keeping in touch with them. Amazing. That's really cool. And like, just going back to this, this scene that we were on, mm-hmm. I imagine you could never have imagined this stuff happening, this development of your career when we were sort of teenagers and, mm-hmm. you know, there was this, this UK rave scene. I bet you never imagined that you'd be teaching at such a massive place like the Brit School and making video mm-hmm. game soundtracks and stuff like that. Yeah, no, um, it was... Yeah, the like I said, the the kind of the music direction was never um, part of the plan. You know, that was never something I thought I'd do professionally. I, I had ideas for tunes, um, and it, yeah, it's 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 a really funny. It's a really I think about it all, and I think that's all I did as a child. And when something's kind of weirdly your, you know, your path it'll just sort of happen, do you know what I mean? And I guess I, um, through just being so obsessed with house music and when Acid House happened, it's like I devoted my life to it. And it, it's the same for, you know, loads of other people. It's, it's really interesting to think of so many of my friends all started making music at the same time. And weirdly, loads of us, got in the charts it was you know just such an odd thing yeah and we were hanging about together we started mu- making music at around a similar time and when we all got in the charts it wasn't like um, a sense of disbelief that this incredible thing was happening it felt almost quite natural it was like right. what we were doing you know it was like we had these quite you know good ideas and it just sort of exploded, you know, but I suppose, yeah, what you're saying about the scene, um, you could never have predicted it was gonna explode in the, the, the way that it did, but weirdly we knew something really important and special was happening. You know, it wasn't like we were just sort of these dizzy kids kind of uh, partying. We were fully aware that something really profound and important some big change almost you know like a revolution was going on you know we've, mm-hmm. we very much felt like we could feel something big was happening yeah yeah it, I mean for me um just as somebody who attended and worked in the clubs um I had friends around me that were becoming bedroom DJs that were starting to work on radio shows because they were collectors maybe people who were going into like the design and the artwork side of things and there was an entire scene around this I was a dancer um and you know there were it was a it was a complete culture Mm -hmm. and um I see it a little bit akin to things like what one of our previous guests actually was big on the New York hip hop scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and he spoke about the many facets of, of hip hop um, mm-hmm. in terms of the creativity. And this was a music that came from a culture that came just from kids on the streets. Yeah, And this was a thing with the UK rave scene. It was a very much a homegrown 
um, scene and a cultural scene. It wasn't just about the house music or the acid house music or whatever. Um, so from your point of view, explain what it was like being a, a bigger part of that. What was going on around you when you were creating music and starting to make your 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 big track, the hardcore uproar track? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was um, it was really, really exciting because um, you, we saw because I was into the music before the scene happened. Um, my kind of development was. My, as I said, my obsession with the music initially and kind of um, putting ideas together, um, wanting to make a record, but not um, really having much of a clue as to how to go about doing that. And it was, and I'm, I'm now I'm, I'm aware of all the different scenes that followed a similar path, you know, like punk. Uh, having a very and and even hip hop the, the the stuff you're talking about the elements of hip hop and I, I kind of see the similarities now and I wasn't aware of that side of it I certainly wasn't that aware of how political Acid House was and I was just um, really my focus was the music you know I was wanting to um, make the music and um, create something and get it out there certainly totally unaware that it was going to have some um significant impact you know and, and definitely unaware that we were going to sign to major record labels that was mm-hmm. just never you know part of it. and I, I guess the the political thing um that was going on was the government trying to stop it that was um something which I, it really annoyed me because I, I couldn't understand why um, they were so aggressively trying to stop it. And yeah. now I, I kind of get that um, young people getting together in large numbers is a bit of a threat to, you know, the establishment. Yeah. Precisely. I mean, this is, I don't know, <laughs> I can't remember the exact age range of our listeners, but um a lot of the thing with the UK rave scene was before all of these controls came around festivals and gatherings and stuff like that, before it all became not so much legalized, but there was so much, there's so much red tape around it. Now Mm -hmm. you did used to be able to just get together and have a party. Mm -hmm. And the idea that these gatherings were were gathering so much momentum with people from all over the country traveling to be at these gatherings. And it was turning into such a big scene where it was creating its own music. It was creating friendships. It was creating an individuality and moving towards a revolution. Um, yeah, it's interesting that the government wanted to step in on that. Yeah. Um, and like you said, as adults, we can, we can make sense of it. At the time, it was really just spoiling the fun. I think a couple of us had an inkling that it was like, oh, my goodness, something strange is going on here. Um, but this is what's happened with a few of those music scenes. I mean, George, our previous guest, was talking about the destruction of the communities that bred hip hop music in New York. Mm -hmm. different things that the government did with developers um and um i don't know whether um your track wasn't the first but 
there were numerous tracks that were signed to major labels. Mm -hmm. And um, do you think that this was where the, like, the government was stepping in to break up the revolution by <laughs> signing you? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a nice idea. I'd like to pretend and say yes. Margaret You're like the Bob Dylan of house yeah, music. No, it, 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 it's the, the truth is, you know, we were just offered really uh, lucrative deals. And, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the music became so popular, it was clear that there was a lot of money to be made. You know, we, we wanted to be independent. We wanted to um, stay as an independent artist and form an independent label and maybe get some backing. That was kind of our intention. Um, but when you're offered um, record deals and all these kind of promises of uh, great things happening and album deals even at the time, it's really hard to, to say no. I guess we could have done. Looking back at it, I, I, I always think what would have happened if we did um, stay independent, stayed independent and completely did it on our own because Jonathan, who I was... Um, but who made everything happen? Uh, he certainly was clued up enough to to make it happen. It wasn't like um, you know, it, it's it's a nice kind of idea that you could potentially go off and do it, but most people wouldn't have the you know they wouldn't be business savvy enough and wouldn't have the the know how. And he he absolutely did. I certainly didn't. You know, I was just an, a ridiculous, an incredibly giddy kid. That's all I was. Just a really really giddy kid with millions of ideas just bursting out of my head and um you know you put me in a recording studio and I'm gonna make a record I'm not gonna know what to do with it you know I can uh, <laughs> you know when we were doing remixes Jonathan used to say when we'd, we'd if ever there'd be a lull he'd be like right do your thing just come up with a melody over this record and I could just close my eyes and think and uh, you know a melody had form in my head and I would uh I'd, I'd just you know I'd, I'd write um that, that's what that was my that was my strength I'd, I'd never have any shortage of ideas and it was quite a, a bizarre I later found out that it was a really bizarre um approach I didn't know Jonathan loved it um you know he he kind of uh yeah understood my my bizarre way of writing music but I later found out that normal people, other you know, composers, writers, they go to a piano, they go to a keyboard, or they go to uh, the guitar and work out a melody. That's apparently the the way to do it. Whereas okay. I, the way I see it is, you're restricted to your um, your playing skills. Do you know what I mean? Your musicianship. Whereas in your head you can write a symphony which can go way beyond your kind of physical cape, you know what I mean, ability, yeah. and you can do anything in your head, you know? And so I used to write entire pieces in my head. And I, 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 I guess now I'm kind of, I do use, you know, instruments more, but I still do it. Yeah, a lot of my writing's just in my head. And I, I, at first, the first person to, to make me aware of it was Rowan Heath, who wrote that, um, do you remember that, uh, The Key, The Secret? Yes, yeah, so yeah. He used to be in my band. He used to be in Together for a few years. And when we were first writing, I remember him going, what are you doing? Like, oh, I'm just writing a melody. And he was like going, you're not, you know, what, just in your head? And you know, <laughs> he, he didn't He didn't get it. And I guess it was quite bizarre. I'd, I'd, I'd Homer 
a bass line to him. And he'd be like, have you just written that? I'm like, yeah. And then I'd hum a kind of a piano line and then a string line. And the thing which I, I, I didn't really appreciate that was quite unique and quite special now is that he'd go, how did you know that that piano line would work over the top of that string, over the top of that bass line? How did you know those elements were going to work together? And he was a grade nine pianist, you know, classical, classically trained. You know, you go to grade eight and then grade nine teacher level. So he was, you know, an extremely accomplished musician. And he'd be like, that, this isn't normal. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> you know, it was normal to me. You know, that's how I wrote. That's how oh I. Oh my goodness. So yeah. your brain literally is a synthesizer. <laughs> so yeah, like, like a sequencer. Yeah, yeah. It was <laughs> a sequencer. It's all yeah. there. It's got a storage facility. It's got all of this stuff inside <laughs> your head, Sudi. Wow. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. I kind of wrote in this really quite um, bizarre, bizarre way, which. Maybe kind of meant, um, I know, hopefully it meant that I was writing original music as a result, you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah it kind of had my you know, a, a bizarre kind of, um, way of doing it, but it, it worked for me. You yeah. Know what I mean? yeah. And that meant that, like, obviously this way of working, like you said, Jonathan loved it and you were going into the studio and you had your your first release when you were signed was Hardcore Uproar, yeah. wasn't it? And yeah, that's right. did you ever conceive that that was going to be such a, a revolutionary to go back to that idea piece of music? I mean, it was a it, it was a it was a massive track. Yeah, no, you know? never in a million years. In fact, we did a few things that um, were quite unusual at the time. I remember um, uh, going we, we kind of developed the ideas um, Jonathan would. The, the I'd, I'd sing my ideas to him and he'd say to me, so that's uh, four bars of bass line. I'm like, is it? I didn't know, I didn't know what a bar was. I didn't know what a, a semitone was. I didn't know what an octave was. I didn't know anything. I later studied all these things to, you know, become uh, more knowledgeable about music theory. And <laughs> he, he was going, yeah, you know, you've just written, you know, uh, eight, eight bars of this and left and then, the piano is going to, uh, you, you, you want the piano to come in after 16 bars. I'm like, oh, right. Okay. If you say so, um, <laughs> he'd, he'd make, you know, he'd make, he'd make musical sense of, of my um, sort of ideas and my imagination. And uh, we had this bit in, in hardcore uproar where the music stops dead. And um, it was, it was pretty much hadn't not really something which was happening in music. And I know where a lot of the ideas come from. I, I did an electro record called Alna Fish and that did that. I was 13 years old and I heard it and it just sounded like the most exciting, amazing idea I'd ever heard. And I wanted that feeling in our record, but this was house music and house music came from disco and it was bizarre to uh, stop the disco record, the house tune, just in the middle of it. I've got a minute after it started, and we were in this. We we're in the studio. The sound, the, the engineer who was older than us and more experienced, and a very kind of serious professional uh, engineer. He, he he literally told us we weren't doing this. We were like, "What? I'm sorry, it's our record. What do you mean right. we're, we're not doing this?" He was like, "You're stopping the music in the middle of." Sorry, the tunes you started, that's not going to work. You're going to clear the... I remember him using that expression. You're going to clear the dance floor. And we were like, wow, this old man just does not get it. 
you know, we we were, you know, we were I'm glad we stuck to what we were doing. It's the the biggest bit of the tune when the music stops, everybody throws their hands in the air and everybody's yeah, screaming. Yeah. But we never really thought about the fact that no other tunes were doing that. Do you know what I mean? We yeah. kind of we pictured the hacienda. We imagined when this happens, everyone's gonna go mental, everyone's gonna go absolutely crazy. And then the beat comes back in and the pianos come in and it's gonna send the place wild and it, yeah. it did exactly that, but you know, did. It, yeah, yeah, doing doing these things, I sort of drifted off a little bit there. The question was, did you expect it to be, as you know, as um, you know, going the direction that it did? And never in a million years, you know, that our dream was just to hear it in the house. That was it. That was what we wanted. We thought, if that happens, that's job done. You know, we we don't need to do anything again ever. You know, we, we're happy. And it ended up the the biggest record and of that year at Hacienda. So it was just uh, yeah beyond kind of any of our wildest dreams. And then yeah. everything else happened. It was really exciting. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, even what you said described about like actually writing the record in that way, if you can call your process writing it, <laughs> yeah. writing the creating the record in that way um, with that that gap and that drop that in itself is quite revolutionary isn't it because like you said it had never been done before so were you leading the way for um a new angle on this music that was out um do you know the funny thing was we we did do we appreciate now that there was a, a ton of copycats after it and we were doing uh, n- new things but we weren't trying to do new things we were just doing what 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 felt right you know what i mean that was that was it it was just um just we wanted to make um dance music that fit with that scene that was going on you know what i mean it was it was absolutely around what was going on with uh i mean that's the end you know i keep mentioning it it was a big part of uh, what shaped our music and the blackburn raves and so really them them two things were um we were going i would say every week I, there was sometimes um if I, if it had nothing to do in the evening i'd just go to that's the end even if it was just a student night if it was a monday night if there was a band on i didn't care i'd just go to the hacienda just to be in there you know just just if I, you know it might cost a couple of quid to get in but i'd rather have a pint there than anywhere else you know just to be in that space so it just completely shaped what we were doing and you know having a kind of um it's it's a funny thing being being young and obsessed with something you have a profound kind of understanding of what's going on without even realizing it so we were making music knowing exactly what uh the arrangements of the music should have been and i guess it was yeah, they were unusual. They were new. This music was brand new. The scene was brand new. We were doing things that were unusual. And um, there's a little sound in Adcourt where, where the beat um, plays backwards, the, the bass drum. And right now, you just press the reverse button on the computer and it just reverses it. Where we, uh, because it tape, you know, tape just does not exist in the modern music world anymore. And we took uh, the tape of a forward bass drum and cut it out, literally scissors, cut the uh-huh. bass drum out, turned it upside down and sellotaped it back on to this turn 
and it's the backward oh drum. My goodness. Yeah, we literally had to, we were cutting tape up and sellotaping it back on in order to have these uh, sounds which were hard to create otherwise at the time. So we were doing kind of like quite unusual things, but you know, we just did what you know we had to do to kind of make it happen. But yeah, on a, on a where I guess some of it was um groundbreaking. Um it's lovely that a million uh not you know a lot of records um obviously I could hate we could hear that we'd inspired a ton of other people and a lot of people tell me um the word hardcore which then appeared probably about a year after was inspired by our tune the, yeah. kind of scene, the scene got harder and the, the the hardcore scene which um people were, were following a lot of people said to me that name was that word was used because of your record but we didn't you know I've, I've got to put my hand up and say we didn't come up with that title it was right. a guy called uh tommy who uh organized the blackburn raves so he he was such a an influential pioneer you know he, he put his freedom on the line organizing the blackburn raves but mm -hmm. he just wanted to make thousands of people happy you know so yeah we, we took his name he, yeah. he he we sampled his raves and he wanted us to use his name for our tune and yeah, we did yeah. and we get the did credit you, for you didn't you you took some samples at the Blackburn raves that went yeah yeah that's it yeah we we, yeah. we recorded the crowds um mm -hmm. so yeah Jonathan didn't do things by halves uh, he, he wanted the sound of um the raves he wanted the sound of there was nothing quite like imagine um being in a in a warehouse with 10,000 people the hacienda was amazing but that was only a couple of thousand people being in a, in a warehouse with 10,000 people was like a feeling which you, you know it's hard to describe mm -hmm. and he wanted to capture that atmosphere of 10,000 people cheering so he approached the organizers of the Blackburn Raves and you know I know them now and I don't know what I was scared of to me they were um people who organize parties that they're, they're illegal therefore I was a bit scared you know to be really honest if, if you know Tommy hears this he'll laugh I was scared of him he's the loveliest friendliest man in the world and I, yeah you know I would never have approached him and said we want to record your parties but Jonathan just did the things what needed to be done so he approached him and said um we're a band um which was mad crazy for me anyway because just because I had a baseline in my head that didn't mean to me that I'm a band you know all I, as far as I was concerned I was just a kid with a baseline in his head but he'd say you know we're, we're, we're a um, production duo um, a band we're recording this record we'd like to record your raves and they said yes which um, kind of blew my mind at the time uh, he went to um, some professional um, sound recording uh, company to hire microphones and again tape and got a reel to reel, uh, an old fashioned reel to reel, took it down to the parties, put them on uh, the stage, like it's not quite a stage, but like a, an area where the DJs were, put the mics on and turned around to the DJ and said, Right, if you could stop the music for a second and uh, we'll just record the crowd. And they stopped the music. So you press stop on the, the record, the deck. And I think everyone thought that the, the power had gone. It wasn't a legal rave. <laughs> you know, I think they thought, oh, right, the sound's gone. Therefore, some, you know, something must have gone wrong. No one cheered. You know, <laughs> we, we, wanted, 
cheering. Everyone's there a bit depressed that the sound had gone off. So we started cheering. We were, you can hear my voice beginning the record going, yeah. And someone whistled and then somebody else did an air, did an air horn. And then the, the cheering kind of grew and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. So we captured this uh, incredible sound of um, 10,000 people cheering. And we put it at the very beginning of the record. What we yeah. didn't know was that was going to be the last ever rave. The police busted it. That yep. night. And, you know, it's a slice of history. So, yeah, yeah. You know, we recorded the party. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. I mean, for people listening, this was the difference back then. You've got things like, I guess there's the warehouse project in Manchester where they're trying to occupy these abandoned spaces and organise parties and stuff mm -hmm. like that within the current guidelines but this was the um the nature of that uk rave scene that there were hundreds of thousands of people that were coming together with somebody like you said as as simple and straightforward as this as tommy is um just bringing people together for a party and that must have been incredibly threatening for the powers that be mm. um, because like you said the police started to get involved and you know, everything became under control of like licensing and uh, the bouncers and various different regulations. And there were even um, there were even laws put through about how many people could gather together in public yeah. after parties and stuff. So even though I made that sweeping statement when we were chatting earlier on about your record being the beginning of the end, it really wasn't because like where you sampled at the Blackburn Rave, things were already faltering a little bit then, weren't yeah. they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, if anything, you know, I, I kind of feel like a, I've had a load of people that producers even say um, that they got into, it's quite incredible for me, uh, they got into making music um, after uh, they heard Hardcore Opera or that, that person I'm thinking of, uh, Phil Kelsey, he went on to make Let Me Hear You Say Yeah and Temperatures Rising, two rave classics. He produced uh, tracks for us later. And he said before he heard Hardcore Opera, he thought dance music was a bit cheesy. It was a bit just uh, a bunch of beats and people on drugs. And he, he, he said he heard that and realised it can be quite musical. And it, yeah, inspired him. And a few people have told me that they got into making music after they heard the, heard the tune. So, yeah, if anything, you know, I kind of almost feel like it it did help kickstart something, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And kind of um, hopefully kind of uh, shown that a piece of music could be um, kind of have the credibility of the underground and also cross over. There was a few at the same time. There was uh, LFO and Tricky Disco all kind of like charted. We were in, we were in the, you know, the top 20 at the same time, which was bonkers, you know what I mean? Kind of northern bleak. <laughs> house records all kind of um all doing well you know what i mean so that was yeah it was pretty pretty crazy yeah yeah because i mean going to a rave now or these edm festivals and stuff it, it means like getting on chartered flights and getting gift packs with branded g and t's and <laughs> glow sticks and stuff like that glow sticks is the only continuum i'm finding <laughs> people yeah. love a good glow stick yeah but in the days when when you were doing this, there was none of this technology. You've already talked about working mm. on tape. Um, all of these things were organized mm, in a very basically digital way. I mean, it was people were on pages. And I know I didn't have a mobile phone at mm. all. My friend did. 
And even when you were there at the raves, it was nothing like you'd experience at somewhere like the warehouse party nowadays. Yeah, 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 not at all, no. Yeah, no. A lot of people, it's an interesting thing, actually, how things are now. Um, Obviously, things there's a a massively commercial aspect about it, but um, I kind of feel like saying, because I know a lot of people moan about it's not the same anymore, and there's you know, house music's pop music now and it's become really big. But it's kind of what we we wanted at the time. We wanted it to be, to come from, to go from the underground, to be bigger and to be um, everywhere. You know, we, we were talking about, oh, it's kind of um, the government are trying to stop this thing and it's just not, you know, you can hardly go anywhere to listen to this thing. And it grew and it got popular because it was good. And, you know, the, the interesting idea is that the people saying um, the parties aren't quite as good as they used to be you know but I think that they're all right you know I'm one of the few people who's still still going out and you know yeah. can compare compare 1989 to 2022 and you know I'm still going to parties and still kind of going to festivals and I think that they're pretty good right now you know they you know yeah someone's there's a there's a corporate sponsor and they can organized in a really efficient way and mm. I guess you know the, the the plus side to that is that they're safe you know yeah. a few sort of things really did go wrong yeah there were a couple of incidents but um yeah the atmosphere is quite good you know what I mean I, I do I do really enjoy them you know stuff what's yeah. going on right now yeah I'd really like somebody to do these events and do um, have a policy like Berghain in uh, Berlin has where they ban mobile phones and cameras. Yeah, yeah. The, the, um, the <laughs> acid night that before when we were talking that the club that I, I played fairly recently, they have a no phones on the dance floor kind of policy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, got to admit, uh, before I even had any connection to him, I, I kind of just used to go there. When I was living in Manchester, I used to get a train up, so that was about 100 quid, and I'd get a hotel, which was about 200 quid, and then, you know, you've got your drinks and have something to eat. You spend, I was spending about 400 quid just for a night out, and the reason why I was doing that, my mates in Manchester were like, sorry, you go into this club night just, just for a club night, just to dance, and you're spending hundreds of pounds. And for me... I remember sitting back, uh, going to some of the the early Isle of Acid nights, thinking, this is like 1989. This is as exciting, as amazing. And, you know, it it was just brilliant. You know, there was hardly anyone on their phones and people were really, really into the music. And over a period of time, because I'd I'd go uh, to quite a lot of them, met a lot of people there who I'm still really good friends with and that's interesting that's a really good thing about great thing about house music um you're into the music you, you probably find that you're probably quite like-minded as well mm. and a lot of my closest friends today some of the people a lot of the people who are um, my, my yeah people I speak to the most the people I met in the early 90s or 89 and yeah, you know, they're genuine friendships. Do you know what I mean? They're people who um gone on to uh, form, you know, genuine friendships and people I'm still in touch with. And yeah. things yeah. that have happened with these kind of um, more recent kind of clubs. Yeah. You know, you meet people there and you, the chances are you're probably going to be on a similar wavelength. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. 
And this doesn't happen at gigs these days, does it? Mm. I mean, you go to a gig and they're into the band and you're there and you kind of listen to it, you're with your friends, you leave. And this has always been the incredibly passionate thing about, um, like you said, dance music in all it is, it's finesse and little slight differences across the house music genre. It's always been a thing about people coming together and having a wonderfully, in some sense, mm -hmm. sort of spiritual experience mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. making these friendships and building these bridges around just this loving experience of enjoying the music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. That, that, you remind me of, it reminds me of um, the first time I walked in the Hacienda. It was an incredible week. Uh, I'd never been to a proper kind of house music club, acid house party or anything like that. Uh, on the Wednesday, I went to the Hacienda. The Thursday, I went to the Park Hall in uh, Chorley, which is another big uh, the club of my life. Friday, we went back to the house, so I couldn't believe it. And then Saturday, I went to Blackburn Raves. So this kind of um, week changed my life. And I just couldn't believe. So the first thing I, I saw was Hacienda. And I couldn't believe that there were other people as into the music as me. I was like, wow. <laughs> I thought I was, you know, it's mainly in my bedroom kind of listening to this stuff on, on records and tapes, Stu Allen's radio show. And my mates at school. Oh, were, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. My mates, my mates were like, you're really obsessed with this thing, aren't you? You know what I mean? I was just really <laughs> obsessed with the music. And yeah, going to clubs and seeing there are thousands of other people who are more into it, if anything, more into it than me. And that was just so exciting hearing new stuff and just, yeah, you know, hanging about with uh, hanging out with um, people who did on a yeah. similar wavelength. Yeah, it was really my People from Coventry, people from Wales, people from Scotland. Yeah, I used to go to people and ask them where they're from. You know what I mean? Just because it yeah, was yeah. a buzz going... Where have you travelled from? Like, I'm from London. Yeah, yeah. I'm from London, just to dance, just to be in this warehouse. I'm like, yeah, where are you from? And it was just brilliant. Yeah. I used to love, you know what I mean, going around and finding where everyone's yeah. from. And it was just like, this is bonkers. We all just come together yeah. just, just to dance. And, you know, an amazing atmosphere. It really was amazing. Yeah, absolutely unbelievable. So then, and, and then <laughs> the, also, I just remember making friends with people and going back to Wales with them or something. <laughs> yeah, let's just go back to Wales. Let's just have a party. Or they'd come to our house or whatever, you know. Yeah, and yeah. Absolutely magical thing that there were people in these old little, like an old little Ford Fiesta or something, driving yeah. all the way across the country. And it was like we were in, you know, a little time warp or something. It didn't matter. We'd walk out of one club at 3 a.m. and go to a, a country park somewhere to meet some people and then go to Wales. And I remember ending up in Patheli and then getting a lift home. And, you know, it was just, yeah, yeah. and I, I think, um, <laughs> I think, yeah, like you said, there's some amazing events around now and they're all beautifully coordinated for, for many reasons that were outside of the rave scene. I mean, there were big health and safety issues at, at big music festivals, um, but one thing that just wouldn't happen now is people disappearing off to Patheli after an hour. <laughs> you know, that yeah. kind of stuff doesn't happen. The health yeah, and yeah. in terms of people actually going home to where they're supposed to go home to. Yeah. These days. Yeah, no, we often would end up at a, a party after it. And there was because uh, there was quite a lot of people I knew around the um, Charlie area and Colchith as well near Warrington. Um, it's funny, it's, it's a tiny little town um, just outside of Warrington, uh, Colchith, 
But some reason I, I became really friendly with loads of the people there. And so, yeah, I'd, 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 we'd go back there and play records and stay up and have a great time. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was great. Exactly. Yeah, and, uh, last thing I wanted to do was go back home, you know what I mean, and <laughs> carry the party on. It was really, yeah, it was really something quite special. Precisely. Sudi, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. Thank you. I, yeah, I I'm here. Great chatting to you. Again, for everyone listening, again, this is another guest that I think we could just sit here and talk for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so just as a closing statement from you, um, I like to ask people this, when you look back on what you've done, mm -hmm. you've found this journey, you've followed this journey. Of course, we're called Dharma things. It's as though this magical little gathering of events in your life set you on this path that you've been on. What is your most wonderful thing that you've brought to the world? What is it that you give to the world with what you do that, that makes you the most excited or the happiest? <laughs> Um, <laughs> honestly, do you know what? I feel like um, I'm constantly learning and I, whatever I'm, I don't know, if, I think a, a lot of people do get this, whatever you're kind of like working on um, currently feels like the most exciting thing. And I do feel like um, the stuff that I'm doing currently and the stuff that's yet to come out is going to be, uh, the things that will be the thing I'm most proud of. So it's like, I feel like I've yet to to do my best stuff. You know, I'm kind of um, still making things, still really, I mean, from uh, maybe I, I need to calm down at my age. I'm just, I'm weirdly still excited <laughs> about everything. You know, the world excites me a lot. There's a lot of, I feel like music has got to a, a point where it's the best it's ever been. It's just, it's getting better and better you know, electronic music's just improving. There's just so many amazing records out there. So, uh, I mean, as far as what I've I've achieved, um, it's unlikely that anything's going to have a, a bigger impact um, kind of in popular culture than hardcore uproar. It was um, 32 years ago now. And, you know, it's lovely that people talking about it there's a guy on channel five last night on the tv with the t-shirt on i got a few people posting messages to me saying have you seen this guy on channel five with the hardcore uproar t-shirt on which is really funny so it's great that it's you know it's loved but it is you know it, it's something which um was a part of my really colorful history but um hopefully I'm, I'm gonna be doing um some interesting things that people are gonna enjoy over um the, the next few years good Amazing, Suddy. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> and I wish I had the editing skills to edit in your track at the end here as an <laughs> outro, but that is your job, not mine. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but for everyone listening, I, like you can find us on Instagram, and I'm sure I will post little snippets of Suddy's work if I can find them. But <laughs> Suddy Raval, thank you so thank much you. Cheers, for spending your time to talk to us. Yeah, no, pleasure. Great speaking mm -hmm. to you. So for everyone listening, thank you for tuning in or whatever you call it when you're on Spotify or Mixcloud or whatever these days. Um, and 
give us some love, give us some likes, some shares on Instagram. We have people from all over the world listening to this. So you guys that were out there in Kansas, I hope you're still listening <laughs> and tune in next month. I will have another wonderful journey. Somebody else who has found their Dharma in life. Enjoy.